So today's going to get a little weird on you. Is that cool? Are we talking about biblical prophecy? And always when you talk about that, we all have the weird uncle, the relative. Maybe you are the weird uncle that talks about prophecy or talks about certain stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about that today in order to somewhat demystify what it is, but also talk about its importance. Before I do that today, I want to talk a little bit about where we've come from and a little bit about where we're going. So we, we did this series called He Hears Us on Prayer. And part of the reason we did it is that we really believe that prayer is the currency of humanity is that almost every religion in the world, and even people who would claim themselves as irreligious or non-religious, probably pray at some point in their life if they do not have the power to do something in their lives, and they would appeal to a higher power. But part of the reason we did it also is just to teach people how to pray. We went through the Psalms, and we taught about different types of prayer, about repentance, about talking about God's glory. And Pastor Roy last week ended this series in an amazing fashion in a message called All Eyes Look to You. And if you didn't watch that, you should definitely go back and watch it. He talked about some different prayer postures, about shouting, which is pretty awesome. You look like a crazy person in the car, but it's also great to shout and praise. And so if you haven't watched that, we highly recommend you go back, you can go to our YouTube page and you can watch that as well. And then uh, I also wanted to make a, a few different things for you guys to be aware of is that small groups, uh, we, when we did the, the Here Here's a series, we really wanted to invite people, encourage, heavy ask, heavy encouragement for you to get into a group. And we put a lot of time and effort into that series. And then as we move on to a series called Next and other series, we're going to provide <clears throat> small group questions. And again, a continued heavy encouragement for you to get into a group. You know, worship is great. The message hopefully is pretty good, but there's no substitute for community. And so we really hope that at some point, I will, I, just personally, I hope to wear you down, that at some point where you go, okay, stop talking about me being in a group. I will relent. I will be in one because we really believe in groups that much and community is powerful. And the last thing, uh, or not the last thing, but one of the other things I want to do is I'm going to talk into the camera real quick. So some of you who have been watching You watch for various reasons. Some of you watch because you're on vacation or you're on a trip, and watching online is a way for you to keep connected to your church, and we love that. And for some of you, you you will never make it here. You live in a different geographical area, or maybe you're taking care of a relative, and you can't come here. I want to talk about the third group of people. Some of you have stayed online and have not come back, and we want to invite you to come back. Because, you know, church online is a window. It's not a home. And if you can, you have to participate from afar, we totally get that. But if you're able to come back in person, and if you, like all of us, need a community, we invite you and encourage you to come back, especially in this season as we go on into Christmas. Come back to church in person and be with us. We'd love for you to do that. So thank you so much. And the last thing I want to say is just an encouragement for people who are not in this room, meaning students and kids. If you have a teenager, a middle schooler, a high schooler, um, we've got a great series uh, coming up. Our students director, Tyler, is doing something called Totally Mental. And mental health and health crisis, not only in adults, is challenging, but it's, it's far more impactful and in some ways far worse in our kids and in our students. And so we invite you. They have high school on Sunday nights and middle school here on Sunday mornings. And then also our kids program as well. Get your kids into uh, the, the program we have on Sundays and Wednesday nights. They will really, really enjoy it. They'll really, really enjoy it. So I 
hope, hope you guys do that. If you have kids or neighbors, you can bring them too. Rachel and I usually bring a car full of kids. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty fun. <clears throat> so we're on a series called Next. And if you look at this graphic, it says from the future, back to your faith, back to faithfulness. We're going to get to that at the end of our time today. But I want to talk about the future leader. So today we're going to talk about biblical prophecy and a lot of it is going to be sent on the future, but we're going to also describe what biblical prophecy is a little bit. And here's kind of the tagline or the underlying uh, tagline for this series. It's called this. You can put that up there. It's called Next, Building Your Faith by Knowing the Future. Now, Nevada, because it is kind of a unique state in more than a few different ways, we have people like tarot card readers and we have people who look into crystal balls, and we also have people who, who claim to commune with the dead. There's all sorts of TV shows and movies about this stuff. Most people would like to know what's coming next. Most people would, would like to know, hey, if you could tell me about my future, I'm interested. And then there are a lot of people who are totally afraid of the future. You're like, I don't want to know how I die. I don't want to know that I tripped on a piece of dog poop and impaled myself, and that's how I go. I don't want to know that. Keep the future to yourself. But if we're honest, we probably would like to know somewhat of what is coming. So I want to ask you two questions. They seem like they're the same. They're not. They're slightly different, but the difference in them is, is pretty massive. So what would happen to your faith in God if he showed you the future? Maybe it's the future of your family. Maybe it's the future of a nation. Maybe it's the future in the end of all times. Maybe it's just a future of someone you know and love and care about. What would happen to your faith in God if he showed you the future? And the second question, which is kind of like it, but a little more personal is this. What should happen to your faith in God if he showed you your future? So if you were in your prayer life, if you're praying, you're in the car or you're somewhere else, hopefully not in the car because it would be kind of jarring if God appeared to you and you're like, ah, let me pull over first. You know, what should happen to your faith in God if he said, here's what your future is like. Here's what's going to happen to you in your future. What should happen? And I, I hope to help you in that uh, throughout this series, <clears throat> but we're going to be talking about biblical prophecy. Now, biblical prophecy can be kind of weird sometimes. We're going to ask this question first. What is biblical prophecy? What is biblical prophecy? You know, it, oftentimes when people think of biblical prophecy, they probably think of a couple different books, Daniel in the Old Testament, and also probably Revelation at the end of the New Testament. Oftentimes people think of it as something that's happening way far in advance, and we just get to read about it, <clears throat> kind of look and see if it's going to apply to us. But we, I wanted to give a little bit of a definition of what biblical prophecy is. And this is how I'm going to describe it. It's a message from God on the way things are, the way things could be, and the way things will be. The way things are, present tense, the way things could be, potential future, and the way things will be. You know, in simplest terms, a prophecy is a message from God. It's a message from God to people. I want to try to give you an example of all three of these. You know, when Jesus was on the earth and he was declaring who he was, he was telling people, I am a message from God. Here's who I am. I am the son of a living God. He would, he would talk in the present tense about who he is. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was giving them a present tense message from God about how things are. Several Old Testament prophets did the same thing. They said, hey, you have turned away from God and God has noticed that your heart is not after God. It's a message 
in the present tense. And then there's a potential future, the way that things could be. In the book of Jonah, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> a guy who does not want to go to where God is telling him to go, to the Ninevites, he, he, he relents in the belly of a fish. You know, maybe there's a lesson there, like just listen to God. Don't, don't, you don't have to go into sea life. Just, just listen to him. And on the way, God is telling him, hey, <clears throat> this whole nation is destined for a bad future but it's a potential future. They can change their future if they come back to me, if they honor me, not only with their lips, but with their hearts. And in the book of Jonah, this nation does exactly that. They change a potentially bad future because God told them of what was coming. And they change their future because they go back to him. And then there's stuff, it's just the way things will be that we have no bearing in. You know, God says, I'm going to send my son into the world. There's nothing you can do about that. I'm going to make my promise through you, Abraham. I'm going to provide you with the land to you and your ancestors. I'm going to come back again someday. I'm going to destroy evil. I'm going to bring my kingdom and earth, and they're going to meld together, and, and, and my will will be done, and every knee will bow. There are things that God has talked about that just said, this is how it's going to be. This is how it's going to be. So prophecy includes all three of these. Now, when we think about prophecy, <clears throat> we might think about some interesting things. Meaning like there are people who claim to be prophets, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And oftentimes when we think about prophecy, we probably think future terms. We probably think like a disheveled person who's telling us something, and it's kind of weird. I'll tell you a short story about that in a second. But why is prophecy either so fearful for us or so interesting? I'm going to give you two ways to think about it. The first one is this way. Prophecy can be very popular with people when they're more interested in what God hasn't said instead of what God has said. You know, part of us is really, really afraid of the unknown. Humans being are inherently afraid of the unknown, which is maybe one of the reasons we want to know what the future holds. We want to be certain, even if it's a future we don't prefer. But so people go to great length to look at soothsayers and to go to witch doctors and tarot card readers and people who look into a crystal ball or just someone who claims to have the answer of what comes next because we really want to know and it's mysterious. But God has already said everything that we need to know in this book. And a different way to say it is this. <clears throat> Seeking out the mysterious unknown through someone is more enticing than being faithful to what God has made known through scripture. People pay large sums of money. <clears throat> they go out of their way to look for someone. They attach themselves to someone who is claiming to be a spiritual guru because this second part, being known through scripture, it takes work. Like the first one is potentially exciting. It's mysterious. But this other one, <clears throat> it takes a little bit of work. Oh, God told me to be this way. All right, I didn't do that well. That's a bummer. And you have to attempt to do it again. And you have to <clears throat> look through what Scripture has to say about your life and the lives of others. You have to compare your life to Jesus to be like, am I really following him? You have to own things. You have to try. Whereas the first one is just, tell me, tell me how it's going to be. And it's very dangerous as well. Because I believe that there are people in this world who want or have this desire to be a spiritual guru or have this uh, bent to have um, a prophet attached to their name. So I want to talk about prophet real quick, and I'll give you my personal opinion real quick. So what is a prophet? <clears throat> prophet comes from two Greek words, or one Greek word that has two parts in it. 
from the Greek word prophetes, prophetes. So it's a two-part word. The first word, pro, meaning to be before or in front of. And the second word, phetes, meaning to be a message or communicate. So someone who speaks or stands in front of God and gets a message, and then they stand in front of people and they talk about them. I met one of these one time at Starbucks. It was great. It was awesome. Me and this other person, I was a pastor at a church, and we were talking about ministry stuff, and we were sitting at this table, and uh, we were just talking about ministry, and this guy had his Bible open, and he overhears us, and he's just like, hey, I've got a message from God. I was like, sweet, let's do this, you know? And I'm the worst. Like, I didn't shut him down. I was like super encouraging. I was like, I want to hear what this is, you know, just the worst. And so he's like, hey, God sent two people. I was like, cool. Who are the two people? He's like, Jesus and me. I was like, tell me more. You know, clearly my Bible doesn't say that, but maybe I just, I ran out of pages and they didn't print the rest. I don't know. And so I'm talking with him about it and he's talking about all this stuff. And he's like, yeah, I'm a prophet. I was like, how do you know? He's like, well, I got a message from God. And I was like, so if what you're saying is false, will you admit that you're not a prophet? And he goes, no, it just means God's changed his mind. I was like, ooh. Uh, so that's a slippery slope right there. So we're talking and I'm, I'm listening to him. And, and finally, I was like, look, man, like if what you're saying is true, I should be able to find this in scripture. Like the ultimate test of a prophet is one, you have to be right 100% of the time. And two, it has to align with what's already said. And you've already committed at least one of those. Like you, you are not aligning. I, I can't say yes to this. Like just leave us alone. But there are people who still do that today. I mean, you can go on social media. There are people who believe themselves to be prophets. And I'm going to give you my personal opinion. So last year, I wrote a book on the Holy Spirit called Wind and Fire. And part of my um, desire in that research was to try to explain some supernatural occurrences and how people think things. And one of those was the office of prophet. There's apostles, and there's pastors, and there's prophets, and a couple other things. And so one of those is I wanted to understand, are there still prophets today? And I came to the conclusion, it may not be your conclusion, that I believe that scripture is very clear that the office of prophet is finished, but maybe the spiritual gift of prophecy is not. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, the apostle Paul talks about prophecy. He hopes everyone is going to prophet, pro- prophesy. But it seems in the book of Hebrews that at the, it says that in the former days, God spoke through his prophets. And in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. And part of the role of prophets was because all the scripture wasn't written down. And once the biblical canon was closed, the message we needed is here. And so I also think that as you look at people who may claim to be prophets, is that they have an inordinate amount or desire to have a spiritual authority over people that is only reserved for Jesus Christ himself. And I believe we should be wary of those. So prophets aside, why is biblical prophecy important? You know, why, why, how is this going to help you in your marriage, you know, in your parenting? How is this going to help you at all? Because it seems like, okay, those are the weird people. They look at the biblical prophecy. Just tell me how it turns out. Let me have my latte and tell me how I can do something else. Why is this important? Well, one scholar believed, this is about 30 years ago or so, that about a quarter of the Bible is biblical prophecy. So you're going to run into it at some point, especially if you go all the way to the end. You open up Revelation, you start reading, you're like, not for me. There's a lot of stuff going on in here. But it's, it's necessary to be able to not only understand it, but figure out why it's important. Let me give you a couple reasons as to why it's important as it pertains to your faith. You know, a lot of scholars believe that there are about somewhere between 400 to 575 or so prophecies just about Jesus. And then he fulfilled about 300 of them. 300. You know what the odds of just fulfilling two or three of those are? 
One New Testament scholar said, if you took the entire state of Texas and you filled it three feet deep with quarters, and then in a helicopter, you took one marked quarter and you tossed it somewhere in Texas and you asked one person to find that one quarter, that's the odds. Like impossible. I mean, the Old Testament, when it talks about the coming of Jesus, it said he would be born in Bethlehem. It said he would come from a line of David. It said that there would be mourning around his birth because children would be killed, which happened in the New Testament narrative. It talked about how he would be Abraham's blessing, the seed that God would bless through the world. He'd be called Wonderful Counselor, my, a Prince of Peace. And also talked about how he would be killed, how he would be handed over, what he would be killed on, that he would come back. It talks all about this stuff, and Jesus fulfills those prophecies. And it should build your faith to go. Not only is the Bible historically and literally and literacy accurate, but in a divine, supernatural sense, it points to something. It points to God being in control of everything. <clears throat> so what, what's, the, what's the reason that God, and we're going to talk primarily about the future today. What's, what is it about that, that pertains to you? And meaning, why does God reveal the future? We're going to talk about it real quick. When God reveals the future, I believe it's for three things. There's probably more. So don't say, hey, Kyle said there's only these three things. I'm not saying that. There's probably more. These are just the three that, I, that I, I found out. First is to provide hope by showing God's good plan for the world. When God announces prophetically what is going to happen in Scripture, it's basically to point people towards a renewed hope in Him. Hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you land. Hey, I'm going to, my father's house has many rooms. I'm going to take you there. I'm going to end evil and injustice. It's God's way of showcasing the trajectory of all humanity. Number two is to initiate change in people by warning them of a potentially bad outcome. Because it's not all good for everybody. There's a portion of the Bible, and Jesus talks about this a lot. He says, you do not want to be in the place that is outside of my father's house. You don't want to be where there's fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't want to be one of those people that it was better not to be born than to spend all of eternity apart from God. And, and you don't want to have these consequences in your life. So it helps people understand this is the trajectory that you have, and it hopefully inspires people to change. And then the third one is it inspires people towards serving the God who ensures the future. If God knows everything, and if he's ultimately in control, wouldn't you want to serve him? And that's what happens in the Old Testament is that they go, okay, God, you've clearly shown that you're in control. I want to be on your team. I want to be my ways and your ways. My will is your will. So in this series, it's kind of an intro, and then we've got a bunch of scripture to talk about. I promise I'll get there. We're going to be doing four different books for the major prophets. You can put the um, uh, graphic up there. So if you were to take all these major prophets, all of them deal with the, the, the other boxes that I put up here. And I, I can't preach on all of them for 35, 45, depending on how long I go, um, all the topics. So I'm going to pick out one topic for each one. But if you were to look at Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel, major prophets at this time, they, they talk about all these subjects. They talk about invasion by rival kingdoms, talk about the, the purpose of the temple, in fact, a future temple, which we'll get to towards the end of this series. The, they'll talk about these prophets, 
what their role is, idolatry, how the nations went away from God, how their placement is in the world, and also how they were supposed to be inspirational to the rest of the world. They'll talk about prophecy. God will tell them not only what's happening then, a potential future, but also a, a, an ultimate future for them. They'll talk about a king, and, and they'll actually, it, um, uh, not only a future king, but God will also uh, tell the people about how their kings currently are missing the mark. And then we'll talk about scripture, meaning it will not only look back, but it will write scripture. They will write scripture that will then be used later on, and we'll get to that. And it'll talk, also talk about nations, rival nations, rival kingdoms, and then finally judgment. I mean, there are probably more subject matters in there, but judgment. Now, the interesting thing about prophecy, and especially about prophets, is that during this time period, you see a massive uptick in the need for prophecy and prophets. And there's one very specific reason this is. Because prior to this, there aren't a lot of prophets. There are some. Moses was one. But during this time, you see this massive influx of God wanting to communicate to Judah and Israel and then the rest of the world. There's only one reason. It's because God wasn't king anymore in the hearts of people. Up to this point, God would communicate through his people. He would be there. And then at some point they said, we would like a king like all the other nations. And God relented and gave them that. And then their kings, even the best one, King David and Solomon and some other ones, they heart, their hearts strayed from God. And God said, you're leading my kingdom astray. Because usually as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. And so their hearts were not attuned to God. So God sent prophets to say, you're not following my law. Your heart is not after me. And they had to interact. And prophets had the worst jobs in the world. God's like, I got an offer for you. Just hear me out on this, okay? I'm going to send you to people and they're not going to like you, okay? That's not a great start. They may attempt to kill you and harm your family. I don't like where this is going. They're not going to listen to you at all. So your whole entire message in life is going to be futile. Why are you sending me then? You know, it's, he, there's not a good like job description. Like luckily he didn't ask them. He's just like, boom, you're going for me. Like they, they were starved a lot of times. They were attacked. They had the worst jobs in the world, but it was written down so we would know. So in Isaiah, the book we're going to be looking at today, he's one of those prophets. And his job is to go into this kingdom. And I'm only going to scratch the surface on the scripture because it's, you know, it's 60 plus chapters in this. And I, I want us to focus on God's future leader. So we'll do that. So in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7 is a very famous scripture because as we lead into Christmas, part of this scripture is quoted on Hallmark cards and it's quoted as part of our desire to celebrate Christmas. So I'm going to give you a little bit of the context here. Isaiah is sent by God. God, and the king at the time, King Ahaz, is fulfilling uh, the, kind of the, the cyclical um, portion of kings who said, hey, I'm going to follow God, and they don't. So King Ahaz, not following God, leading Israel uh, and Judah astray, uh, Judah specifically, and God sends Isaiah to this person. I promise, we're going to do some history. You're going to be like, what does this have to do with me? We'll get there at the end, I promise. So Isaiah is sent by God to interact with King Ahaz. Ahaz is a little bit afraid. Here's what happens. <clears throat> when it became known to the house of David that Aram uh, occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, the king um, at the time, who was not following God, and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go give this message. Go out with your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool. So set a meeting with King Ahaz. I have a message for him. Go meet with him by the, by the road of the launderer's field. Say to him, calm down and be quiet. 
You know, when God tells you to calm down and be quiet, it's not a good start, right? It's like, will you just shut up for a moment and let me talk? Like, that's pretty much what it is. It's like, you have not sought me after. I'm sending someone. You sit down and you listen to what I'm about to say. And God says this, don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks. So God is talking about the kings and the rival nations that Ahaz is worried is going to come and conquer his kingdom. And the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remelah. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Remelah, has plotted to harm against you. They say, hey, let's go up against Judah. Let's terrorize it. We'll bring our armies up there. We'll conquer it. And then we can install Tabil's son as king. So this is Ahaz's fear. He's like, hey, these rival kings and nations are going to come in, they're going to conquer God's nation, and then they're going to instill a puppet king, and I'm going to be out, and all of our people are going to be displaced. And then God gives him a prophecy. He says this, this is what the Lord God says, it will not happen, it will not occur. So God looks into the future, and he says, don't worry. I know you're not following me, and maybe God probably isn't doing this for Ahaz, but maybe for the, the kingdom itself, and maybe, maybe he wants to turn Ahaz's heart back to him. But he assures him, he looks into the future and he says, that's not going to happen. You will not be invaded in that way. <clears throat> you will not lose your kingdom in that way. Do not be afraid because I have seen the future and I'm telling you what it is. And then a few verses after this is the scripture we probably all know, even if you're not a Christian. It says, to us a child is born, a son is given, right? And it says that a virgin will be with child. Now, the interesting thing about biblical prophecy is that most people think it's way far out ahead that it doesn't mean anything to the people at the time. And that's not true. Biblical prophecy needs to mean something to the people at the time. I'll give you a silly example. I'm going to pick on Texas today. I don't know why, but I'm picking on Texas again. So let's say God came to you and he says, hey, good news. 500 years from now, someone's going to discover the cure for cancer. And you're like, okay, I'm going to be long dead. Like that, how does that affect me? I'm, I'm grateful. I mean, it's really cool that that's going to happen. How does that affect me in my life? Well, God wants, when he gives prophecy, to tell people what their portion is in it and how it affects them. And what if, in a difference, says, God says, hey, right now, I need you to go start going to medical school. And I need you to, in your family, build a culture and the love for medicine. And I want you to have a heart for people to cure diseases. And I want, to, I want you to set your family on that trajectory so that 500 years from now, one of your ancestors will have such a love for people and, and they will cure cancer. Would you pay attention then? Of course you would. It has to make sense to the people at the time. Now, this particular prophecy in 714 is kind of like one of those double prophecies. It means something in the time frame, and it also means something later. So a lot of scholars believe that the person, the child who would be born is Isaiah's son. Meher Shalah Hajbaz, just in case you're looking for a kid name, you now have the longest one in the Bible. Meher Shalah Hajbaz. And so some people think that that's his kid, and it might be. But the interesting thing here, just to do a little bit of etymology, is that the Hebrew word for virgin is Alma. And Alma can mean one of two things. It can mean young woman of childbearing age or virgin. It can mean either of those. And so God has almost opened the door to say, hey, there will be a person who is of young childbearing age and there will be a person who is a virgin. They could have used the Hebrew word belmuth, which means only virgin. 
So stay with me for a second. So this, there there probably is a temporary fulfillment of this prophecy, is that there was a child born at the time of Isaiah talking to King Ahaz. But then you jump to the New Testament, Matthew quotes Isaiah 14. And he is written in Koine Greek, not Hebrew. And he chooses a word, parthenos, which only means virgin. And Matthew sees the birth of this child, not as just a fulfillment to King Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, but as God's ultimate fulfillment. And it's hard not to see it that way, because here's how the child is described. Isaiah 9 says this, For us, a child is born, and a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders. So good so far, this could be a human being. He will be named Wonderful Counselor. Maybe he's just really smart. Mighty God. Now we got a problem. No human being would want to be called mighty God. No human being would be called eternal father. And no human being would want to be known with these two in line as the prince of peace. Isaiah is clearly not just talking about a temporal person who was born during his lifetime. He's pointing ahead that this child will be born and will be eternal father and mighty God. And he continues on. His dominion or the dominion of his kingdom will be vast and his prosperity will never end. How many humans do you know never end? We joke about this all the time. Death rate always hovers at about 100%, right? No one's kingdom never ends. He will reign on the throne of David, biblical prophecy that Jesus would come from the line of David, and over his kingdom to establish and sustain with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. This isn't literary hyperbole by Isaiah. He's just like, his kingdom's going to be like gone forever. He's like, no, like actually forever. And then you have all this stuff that happens. I don't have time to go through in the time that I have, is that Ahaz um, and and Isaiah have uh, a couple more interactions, and there are massive amounts of chapter, but today I wanted to pick out just one theme, and it was the future leader. So you, you flip the pages way back at the end, towards the end of Isaiah, and you get Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, you'll notice there's this interchange between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament sees the fulfillment of God's biblical prophecies, not only in the time that they were written and the time that they were happening, but in their time as well. So the Gospel of John, I believe it's chapter 12, quotes Isaiah 53. And he quotes a lot of what we're about to talk about. He says, who has believed what we have heard? And John in his time would be like, who would believe that God is in human form? And he's here. No one would. No one expected it. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he says this. And you may remember some of this. He grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of dry ground. And the New Testament offers believe wholeheartedly that this is describing the coming Messiah. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty and that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was not a good looking dude. Okay. Jim Caviezel is way too attractive to play Jesus. Okay. But the point of it is like you look right past him. Jesus as in, in form, his form, it's not a person to look twice at. And he continues, he says he was despised. And rejected by men. He was a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. It's hard not to personify yourself here like, I feel like that's what we do to him. I feel like we don't value him. I feel like I have rejected him. I feel like the world has rejected him. 
We have to be careful not to make this about us because Isaiah, while he is talking about his time period, God has given him a message to give to the world about a person who would come. And he continues. And this is the one we talk about at Easter time. So Isaiah is like a great book because he talks both Christmas and Easter. Yet he himself, this person who was to come, he bore our sickness. Another way of saying our sin. He carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God. Even the people at the time would be like, man, if he was really the Messiah, he, he, he would have come back. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. I love that word in the CSB. Crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we were healed by his wounds. You know, Isaiah is describing a person that the world needs, not just Isaiah and the kingdom of Judah and Ahaz. And he says, we all went away. We all went away like, like sheep. We have all turned our own way and the Lord has punishment for the iniquity of us all. I mean, if Isaiah is saying this, how can one person in his lifetime who's just a human being be punished for the iniquity of the entire human race? No human fits this description. It's because Isaiah is not talking about a human. He's talking about a messianic prophecy of a person no one could understand. That he was both God and man. Crazy. So John chapter 12 talks about this. He quotes Isaiah, who can believe us? <clears throat> and then a couple chapters later, he quotes Jesus himself. You know, the interesting thing about prophets, again, my, my personal belief, is I don't think we have them anymore. Because I think all we need is in Scripture. Now, you could argue me into the gift of prophecy, but unless it coincides with this, you shouldn't listen. Amen. Now, one of the things that the New Testament is very clear on is that Jesus is a prophet. He talks about what is, what could be, and what is to come. So here's what he says in John chapter 14. He takes the role of biblical prophet, being God himself. He tells his followers the future of what is going to happen. He says, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be tried illegally at night. The chief priests will beat me and reject me. I will be put up on two pieces of uh, sticks for all the world to see, and I will be killed, but I will also come back. And the disciples hear him say this, and they're troubled. And he says, don't let your heart be troubled. This is Jesus talking. Believe in God and believe also in me. That statement would get you killed. Jesus says, and the same belief that you have for God, you need to have the equal amount of belief in me. Your trust in God should be on the same level as your trust in me. He's equating himself with God. In my father's house are many rooms. And he says, if we're not so, I would have told you that. I am going to prepare for a place for you. And he asked this question, wouldn't, wouldn't you trust me to do that if you really believe who I am? <clears throat> now Jesus looks towards the future. And now he gives his own prophecy. He says this, if I go away... And prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself so that where you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. And they're like, we don't know the way you're going. We don't know. And he's like, I'm going to show you. But he's prophesying right here. He's saying, this is not the end. Someday, and this is where we get you know, the Christian viewpoint of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So when you look to Revelation, it talks about this prophecy that Jesus says, I will fulfill what I have said. I will come back. So Jesus fulfills the role 
of God's biblical prophet. So how does this pertain to you? <clears throat> so here's, here's the first thing I want to say. Here's what you should know about the future, whether you want to know it or not. If you read the Bible, there's no getting around. It will tell you what happens in the future. And what we hope is when you know the future and that it is good and that it comes from God, that it will build your faith and lead you to faithfulness. We'll talk about that in just a second. So here's what you should know about the future. Jesus was God's foretold leader. He is the fulfillment of God's prophecy. And someday he will be your future leader. He is the one and only future leader. The Old Testament talks about his coming. The New Testament talks about his presence. And it ends with the whole world. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what's coming. Whether you like that or not. And maybe some of you don't. And that's okay. Because maybe you're in a place where you just need to figure out who he is before you kneel. Everyone goes through that. No one is born a Christ follower. You all have to choose. It's a pivotal choice. So he's your future leader. <clears throat> now what I want to do is I want to ask you three very uncomfortable questions. Okay? Three very uncomfortable questions. I was trying to come through uh, and with some next steps, and I'm like, how do you teach biblical prophecy? Next step is really hard. So I thought I would just ask you some questions and have you come up with your own next. It's kind of like a lazy preacher way to get out of it, but it happens. Not really. But oftentimes, questions are far more revealing than answers. And so sometimes questions are helpful. So three questions you should ask yourself about your faith in this future. Now that you know, that Jesus is not only foretold, he's a fulfillment of God's prophecy, and someday he will be your future leader. Here are the three uncomfortable questions. The first one, what future do you have, what future worry do you have that you need to hand over to God? This is a barrier for you to follow him. And again, just, just to kind of like prod at you a little bit, in the Bible says not to be afraid. And you're like, how do we do that? Like, I'm worried about my kids' futures, my finances, where I'm going to go, my relatives, where they're going. Like, how do we not do that? And he, I, I'm sure he would ask, do you have control of that stuff anyways? You don't. And what it does is essentially when we try to control things, we're playing a mini version of God. We want to so desperately control what happens now and what happens later. And we are not in control. The only thing you get to control are your choices. And even if you make a good choice, it could lead to a potentially bad outcome. But there is one choice that always leads to a good outcome. It's trusting God with your entire life. Amen. It always leads to a good outcome. Yeah. Not good circumstances, a good outcome. And those are not the same. So if you are worried about this, you know, Mark Twain said, I've had a lot of worries in my life, most of which have never happened. It's such a great quote because we'll narrative, well, this narrative in our minds, how we think these are going to, have you ever done that where you think uh, you, you are stressed about a conversation and, and you've, you've played it through your mind like 30 times with this person and it doesn't even go any of those? And you're like, why did I waste all my time and effort and sleep on that? Like, it's dumb. So maybe just the first step, you should go, God, I fully trust you with my future, with this future, with something to worry about. Number two, which of, the mo which of these are you the most concerned about? Your past, your present, or your future? That's not the same answer for everybody. You know, as a, a pastor, I get to talk with all sorts of people. A lot of times I talk about this one with them, their past. A lot of times. 
hey, God won't love me because of what I've done. Hey, I'm telling you what I am currently doing. Hey, I'm worried that I'm not going to get into the kingdom of God because of the choices I've made. I'm worried that God doesn't love me. It's a lot, a lot about the past, some about the future. And I want to get to the, fu- uh, the future as well. But you know that Jesus is the answer to all of these concerns? He looks at your past. He's like, yep, I was there with you. Kind of dumb. <laughs> you kind of did some dumb stuff. But you know what? You put your trust in me. And I forgive you of that past. It doesn't erase what you have done, but it does create a future. We said this years ago, forgiveness will never change the past, but it can create a future. It always can through him. And then in the present, he's like, I'm with you. I know life is hard. I know your kids drive you nuts. I know drivers in Nevada are terrible and you want to cuss at them sometimes. I get it, but I am with you. I will walk you through this by my Holy Spirit. And then he tells, he says, you know, your future is secure that my father's house has many rooms. Like if you are concerned about either of these three, that makes you human, but it also means you have the need to understand that Jesus is the ultimate answer to all three of these. Your past, your present, and your future. Now here's the hardest question out of all three of these. Number three, if Jesus is your future leader, how committed to following him are you right now? This is a very dangerous question because it's offensive. Like, if you are a Christian for a long time, you'd be like, how dare you? I gave my life to him. Why would you even ask that? And if we're not willing to reflect, then maybe we're not following him. Because Jesus changes you, ultimately. And if your friends and your relatives and your spouse and your girlfriend, your boyfriend, anybody else, if when you start following Jesus, you do not fundamentally change, it's hard to say you're following him. And the challenge with Christians who have been Christians a long time is that we get into these motions of things that we believe Christ is about, and he's not. He's just not. Which means you have to go to Scripture to go, what was his life like? What were his teachings? What were his commands? What did he forbid? How did he forgive me? What does he require of me? You have to know those things. And let, let me say it in a different way. For those of you who have kids and grandkids, if they came over and all you knew was their name, do you have a good relationship with them? No. If you don't know their hopes, their dreams, their desires, what they want from you, do you know them? And if you do not know what Jesus wants from you and you do not know what he has ahead for you, you do not know him. And Jesus was very clear about this. Many will say at the end of days, then I knew you. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he says, I never knew you. It should chill our hearts to an aspect that we go, I need to find out. Now, for the second group of people, you're not a Christian yet. You are not following Jesus. It's the same encouragement. Read scripture. Find out who he was. Is he a person worth following to give your life to? For those of us who are Christians, we would say, absolutely. But you have to discover that on your own. It has to be your choice. Last thing I'm going to say is this. Jesus in the future. Just to summarize what we're saying, then we'll do one more thing, then we'll be out of here. Jesus in the future. You know, our future is secured by Jesus, not by our faith. But our faithfulness to him propels him towards that future. Your faith does not secure you a place in the kingdom of God. Jesus does that. Your faith in him He secures it. 
And when you trust him, it should lead to faithfulness. So the reason we're talking about future at all, and we'll talk about it all throughout this series in November, is that if you know the future, it should reinstill your trust to God, and it should reinstill and motivate you to be faithful. Because one is a noun and one is a verb. When you trust God, you can do that in a moment. But to be faithful, you can marry someone on a day, but you can only be faithful to them over a lifetime. They're not the same. And so we have to be, we should be faithful to him. So I'm going to do one last thing. I don't do this very often, but I'm going to do it today. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And if you are a Christ follower, I'm going to lead you in one prayer. And if you do not yet know Christ and you do not, have to, do not know how to know him, I'm going to lead you in a prayer for that. Would you, would you join me in prayer? Father, for those of us who claim a title of Christian or just as a follower of you, Lord, would you just search inside our hearts any offensive ways to you? Lord, for many of us, we've gone through the motions for many years. We have lost our love for you because we have known of you for so long, like just reignite a passion in our hearts to not only follow you, but be faithful to you in all that we do and our words and our desires and our actions, how we present ourselves to our neighbors and friends and everybody else. Lord, help us show the world that we are faithful to you above all else and draw us back to your heart, Father. Help us repent of our sins. Help us seek you with renewed fervor And Lord, help us just acknowledge that we need you so desperately. And Lord, for those of you, for those of us here who do not know you, for those of us who have not said yes and are wondering how to do so, the Bible says that we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And Lord, if anybody's wondering how to do that, in your heart you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for your sins and he rose again. You can confess with your mouth that Jesus is my Lord, my Savior, my God, from now and for all eternity. If you have done that, you are part of the family of God. Lord, thank you for this scripture and for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being here. I know I went over today. Um, Hopefully it was a good intro to biblical prophecy. Next week, we're going to talk about the future nation. And the nations are all over the headlines, especially with Israel, United States, and Palestine. What does a nation and the future nation to God really mean? We hope you'll join us next Sunday for that. Have a great Sunday. You're already blessed in Christ. Thank you for being here.